Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. Today, we're going to look at something that I believe is both terrifying in its potential outcome, but also things we can do, individually do, collectively do, to help thwart a lot of this so we can still maintain some quality of life and autonomy. And that is, look at our economy. Look at the people controlling it. Look at the people who own all the major corporations. Look at the BlackRock and, and uh, Vanguard and State Street. Look at all the control they have. And then ask yourself, how much control do you have over the circumstances in your own life? How, when you make a freedom of choice, which I fully support, how many of those choices are based upon what you can control versus how many of those choices are based upon what they want you to believe are your only options? Look at the mess we have today. So helping us in this journey is Ellen Hodgkins Brown, an economist and attorney in Los Angeles, and she's going to be with us for this hour to talk about the problems. And it's a little technical, especially when we look at the derivative bubble that's out there that could burst and the fact that we are so far in debt, we'll never be able to get out of it as a country and why we just keep printing money without any responsibility for where it's spent and how it's spent and who it benefits. Now let's go to my guest. Nice to have you with us today, Ellen. Thanks, Gary. It's great to talk to you. Ellen, would you first take us on a tutorial through three different topics? You select which one you want to start with. I've given you one, which is our current status of people didn't know that there was ticking time bombs in all of these banking system rules and laws that if the banks fail, we, the public, could end up suffering substantial losses Number two, what happens if the dollar is challenged and our U.S. economy is no longer the top with about $24, uh, $24 trillion, but we're still having more debt at the, just the federal level than our incomes? We have about officially about 110 to 120 percent debt to income. And so what happens if the BRIC nations, Brazil and Russia and India and China and South Africa, and now they're joined by another another 20, including Saudi Arabia, major countries, and it could go as high as 60. That would mean that over 40% over of the entire world's population is within their sphere of economic influence, and they're growing. Their economy's booming. China's economy's booming right now. In fact, the price of oil is shooting up, all to the benefit of Russia and China and other countries, and to the detriment of America's policymakers. So what would happen if... The dollar no longer is the unchallenged reserve currency, but instead these other mixed currencies become the dominant currency of trading, not just in oil, but in everything else they trade. And America has to the first time since Brent Wood accept that the United States is no longer the world's single superpower. And now what would happen to the dollar and the value of everything pegged to the dollar, the stock market, our stocks, our homes, especially those with mortgages, etc.? Those are the two I'd like you to start with, please. Give us your input. Okay, I'm not sure. <clears throat> all right, so first of all, with the bail-ins, um, this was established by Dodd-Frank in 2010, after the Dodd-Frank Act in 2010, after the great um, global financial collapse of 2008-2009. So supposedly it was to um, ensure an order, orderly resolution of bankrupt bank, banks. It only applies to the sci-fis, the s systemically important financial institutions. Um, so those are the big ones, but those are also, as you point out, the ones that have the big derivatives books on their der derivatives portfolios on their books. So they're also, they're not only systemically important, they're systemically risky. Um, so those those banks are allowed or actually required to take the uh, their creditors' um, money, their credit creditors' money, and turn it into capital to ca recapitalize the banks. So what you get out of the deal is a share of stock in a bank that's failing. So not nearly as good, obviously, as having access to your own money. 
but um, in theory, it only applies above $250,000, which is the FDIC limit for insuring deposits. So as long as the FDIC has the money, then um, you're okay. So it's really the big above 250,000 are the ones that definitely are gonna lose their money. Uh, and under 250,000, as long as the FDIC has the money, as you point out, you're okay. But if all the derivatives, if we have a major crash, like we had in 1930s, when all the banks or you know, all across the country, there were bankrupt banks, uh, then the FDIC obviously is not going to have enough money. So then we're, we're all in trouble, no doubt. Uh, meanwhile, what do you do? Well, I'm sorry, I'm not sure what you're, uh, I've forgotten which. Oh, so, so what do we do? Uh, ideally, we would set up an alt, whether we have time to do this, I doubt it. Probably I've heard predictions that, that, there are $600 trillion in derivatives out there, according to um, the Bank for International Settlements. And they don't, re nobody really knows for sure because a lot of them are over the counter, which means they're not recorded anywhere. So some people say it's as much as one quadrillion. I've heard two quadrillion, over two quadrillion. It's a huge amount of money. Um, and very risky. And now that the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates drastically, like very quickly, so that those banks don't really have a lot of time to um, net out their derivatives and pull out of those risky bets, they will be going down. At least some of them will be going down. The ones that roll over that have to refinance their debts will be refinancing at a much higher uh, level. So there will be bankruptcies. Um, businesses, of course, have to rely on credit to fund their fund their businesses. They they have to they draw on their credit lines to pay workers and materials before they actually have a product to sell. So if they if those credit lines are going to be much more expensive, they, there will be business defaults. I, I heard that there's a trillion dollars of uh, debt that's going regular business debt that's going to roll over this year, another trillion dollars next year, and another trillion the year after that. So those those loans are vulnerable, and then there's eighty eighty trillion dollars in um, um, unreported or derivatives that the Bank for International Settlements wasn't aware of apparently that are like off the books that are rolling over this year. So anyway, there's going to be a lot of bankruptcies, which means the the derivative, the whole derivatives pyramid could collapse. It is a pyramid, it's or it's more like a set of dominoes because the derivatives banks or the derivatives financial institutions tend to bet both ways. So um, you know, they'll hedge their bet by betting that interest rates will go up or interest rates will go down. So they're on both sides of the deal. But if one of the if one of the counterparties doesn't pay, or if they're a counterparty and one of their bets doesn't pay, then they're not going to be able to pay the bet on the other side. <laughs> so um, and that just because they're so interconnected, the whole thing can go down together. And that was the reason that they bailed out the banks in 2008, because there was this risk that the whole thing was going to fall. Um, the AIG was the insurance company that they bailed out to a huge tune of money uh, with federal taxes. And that was the reason that, and I guess Lehman Brothers was, was just not considered bailable, bail outable. Anyway, they did. Lehman Brothers was the one that went down and that took down not only our economy, but the whole global economy. So that's what they're, they don't want to happen again, but it does look like, um, I, it does look like it's going to be difficult to get out of the way. So ideally what one would do if one were a government would be as as you're pointing out with the BRICS countries and all these other countries that they have amassed are proposing is a new alternative financial system that just they will be party to. They'll have escaped our financial system. They're going to just walk away from their, apparently from their World Bank and IMF debts and they accept countries that are, you know, that haven't paid their debts. They don't care because 
they're going to be in a new system. And they, originally, they were going to back, back it with a basket of commodities and currencies. So it was not not like you could cash it in for for gold or whatever. But but the, this basket would determine the value of the currencies, and then they could use their own currencies to buy things in. And they're already doing that, where they have these swap agreements between or these agreements for trade between two countries in the currency of for example india can trade in their currency can buy or sell in their currency and with russia which is using their currency um but in december uh sergey glazyev who is <laughs> who is the uh, russian um economist who is putting together this system he's mainly responsible for it or the main creator of it uh now they're saying it will be a goldback system so that makes it much easier but that again it's not like the goldback system that we had in the uh before 1933 where anybody could take his or her or their i guess nowadays you say their his or her their uh dollar bill to the to the bank and get gold in return and not that so that would be a retail gold back currency but what they're talking about is where the currency would be measured in the value of gold so that's how you could compare the relative value of different currencies you'd still be trading in your own currencies and then um trades between countries could be cleared with gold for example you'd trade all day with <laughs> trade with whatever you've got to trade and then if one has an outstanding balance to the other country they could clear it with gold or which is pretty much how how the um the gold reserve system worked until we went off that system like between countries after after we went off the gold system domestically in 1933 all the way up till 1969 you could um countries could cash in their dollars for gold and the problem was of course we we ran out of gold then and that's why nixon closed the gold window okay so i sort of started on your second question what could you okay, let, let me just re refocus the question okay thanks there's an enormous potential growth for the BRICS countries, Russia and China, Brazil, India, South Africa, but now Saudi Arabia and at least 20, 20 other countries joining together, which would quite simply make them the most powerful economic force on the planet. That means then that the dollar would no longer be uh, sanctified as the reserve currency. And when the currency is no longer the dollar in exchange, that means that the dollar is going to absolutely drop in value, how much we don't know. But that also means that when the dollar drops, then everything attached to the dollar is also going to uh, drop, including the value of all the equities on Wall Street. We could see a huge drop there. And a lot of people are going to be scrambling because a lot of people thought that the dollar would always be strong. And therefore, they didn't mind uh, by buying, you know, um, uh, a house, a car, uh, doing a second mortgage, a third mortgage, because they, they believed they had equity in whatever they had. That's a myth. So tell us what could happen when, not if, but when China and Russia and the other countries are now having a larger economic impact than the United States and, and European Union and, and Great Britain and what that would mean for the average person's value in the dollar. Okay, well, I know you wanted me to keep this simple, but I don't think there's any way to keep it simple. I'm trying to write about this right now and I can't make it simple, but there are economists that I think are quite good. Um, and these are alternative medium type economists uh, who say that the dollar, it's not the dollar that is the reserve currency. It's actually the um, the short-term federal securities, short-term federal debt, because the global uh, market for liquidity, for loans, for derivatives, for all those things is uh, the euro-dollar system, which is difficult to explain. It doesn't mean euros. They're not euros. They're off offshore dollars. And um, that system is unregulated. It's basically a repo market, which means instead of being backed by FDIC insurance, 
they're backed by they repo they they're backed by some form of security so they post the the prefer the pristine security is considered to be um u.s federal bonds short-term bonds treasuries so they so they post that overnight take out a bond take out a loan and then they they're supposed to repay it the next day but of course they roll them over day after day after day it's that system is very tenuous that is the system that is likely to go down when as the federal reserve keeps raising its rates now the fed has been the central bank for the world because because of what's called the fed put the presumption that the fed will always step step in and save the markets so that's what they've done with quantitative easing for example but that has also triggered inflation. It's, I mean, we can't keep doing that, obviously printing money. Uh, so the re so with foreign, with this Euro dollar market, which is unregulated, uh, there are a number of central banks that the Fed has these swap lines with. That, that's why you may have heard that there was a lot of money that went to foreign central banks after the after the 2008 2009 crash and people were quite upset with that why were we why were we giving money to foreign countries but of course we weren't it was a loan it was a swap so they got dollars and we got whatever their currency was so for example the swiss the swiss central bank um the central bank of switzerland recently uh, took out a big swap line for dollars and Credit Suisse, which is a big derivative bank, is had a run on the bank and people were wanting their dollars. And of course, they didn't if they're in this euro dollar system, they don't they don't actually have the physical dollars or the Fed's reserves. So that's why they need this swap line in order to keep the bank afloat it's so complicated. There's no way I can really make it easy. But the point is that um there are those who i think are probably right who say that our half of the world is still going to the dollar is still going to be the strongest of the western currencies we're still going to be backing this whole credit system that all businesses need businesses need credit to keep going the reason we have banks is that you need a middleman. I mean, you could see what's happened with these cryptocurrencies that don't have have a middleman. I mean, there is Bitcoin, which is still, I mean, it's plunged a lot. But anyway, when if the, the role of the bank is to guarantee your loans. So they create credit on their books. Whenever you take out a loan, they will create credit on half their books and call that a deposit for you and you can spend that deposit and on the other side they'll put the same sum as a lie as a sorry as in the deposit side is a liability to the bank because they'll have to pay that out whenever you draw on it but on the other side it's an asset to them which is your loan so basically what they're doing when you spend that deposit the bank is insuring your deposits. They're basically standing behind it and saying, you know, they, it's it's a credit line with the bank. And we need that. We need some sort of middleman. Ideally, I mean, <laughs> I'm actually working with somebody who's setting up a, a crypto system where it actually, well, I guess this is getting way too complicated. So, So there's no simple answer to all that. But I do think the dollar is not going to collapse. It won't be. It won't be the reserve currency for the other half of the world. But for the the half that still uses it, it will still be stronger than the other currencies because every every central bank needs it, and every um, all, all well the shadow banking system needs it basically. And the shadow banking system is our banking system today. Complicated though it is. Okay, let's simplify this. Let's just say that <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a little complicated. Again, it's not easy to understand, but I want to make it very simple now. For those of us, myself included, who do not trust the banks, do not believe what the banks say, but feel that they some of these banks are in jeopardy. Remember, everybody trusted the banks, then Neiman, uh, then uh, 
the first Wall Street firm closed, and overnight, the whole banking system uh, collapsed and had to be bailed out trillions of dollars. Who would have thought? But that's the case. Did they learn lessons? Not that I can see, because we're right back into this gigantic debt economy again, where people don't really own what they possess. Their cars, their homes, flat screen TV, furniture, and they're living on debt because debt was made to be obtained very easily. But there's a whole group of people out there that are debt predators. They hope you can't pay your full amount on a credit card. They hope you can't pay but a partial amount because they can then increase the interest that you pay. Student debt is another one of these. Uh, so when you, And the medical debt is astronomical. So we're in a debt-based society. I've done the math. I use the government's official statistics, and we as underfunded, unfunded entitlements and uh, all the other debt at state, federal, corporate, and personal level. It's over $220 trillion in the United States. Those numbers are never discussed. You never get to pull back the curtain to see just how indebted we are. So that said, where can we put our money? What can we do with the assets we do have to ensure that if there is a collapse in a bank, that we're not adversely affected? Well, that's that's a tricky question. So the sci-fi bank, the systemically important financial institutions are the ones that uh, are allowed to bail in their creditors' money. So it's probably, I don't want to trigger a run here, which is what the FDIC is worried about, but it probably is a good idea to try to get your money out of those big banks. So there's a whole list of them that I put in my, or there's a... Anyway, the top ones are J.P. Morgan, um, Citibank, Goldman Sachs, and Wells Fargo. So you probably don't necessarily want to be there. Um, and the the uh, credit unions are good. They they aren't dealing in derivatives. I mean, there is a certain risk being in the banking system at all, as you point out. First of all, if the whole system goes down, they're not going to be able to get the credit they need to keep going. They, you know, they could well go bankrupt like happened in the 1930s. Um, but in the meantime, credit unions or your small local bank is probably a good bet or even it's hard to say, but I mean, even a stock exchange or whatever, they, <laughs> they do see, you know, you can almost, you can leave your money sitting there. Um, it's also a good idea to have like three months worth of cash sitting around in case there's a sudden collapse. Cash is still king in terms of you can you can use it at the grocery store. You can't sell your you can't buy with Bitcoin or with gold or silver at the grocery store. At least not my grocery store. And you can use cash, so it's good to have cash. But a lot of people don't have that. I mean, they don't even have three months worth worth of cash. So so you hear there are many people that just live month to month. Um, it would something like silver and gold is obviously good if you have a lot of money and you want to store it somewhere that'll re retain its value, no doubt. I mean, it's probably going to go up in value because of, as you point out, the um, you know, the BRICS system is going to be largely backed by gold and other commodities. Um, so the, those are kind of the usual responses that people give. But what we need to do is just the same thing the BRICS are doing. We need to redo our entire system. So it would be all right. To, all these things that have gone wrong, it's because our banks are private. Their, their mandate is to make as much money as they can for their shareholders. And of course, for their, <laughs> it's not in the mandate, but for their executives, I'm sure they've got their eye on that. Um, and so that's what they do. Public banks, publicly owned banks, we only have one, but the Bank of North Dakota is our stellar model. They, they, their mandate is to serve the public. So money should be, banking should be a public utility, regulated like a public utility, just like water and electricity, et cetera, used to be before they got privatized. So there are certain things that are in the commons, that, those things that we trade among ourselves that should be 
public utilities. They're things that flow between people and money is like number one. It, it flows just like water, just like electricity, just like roads and uh, trains and all those things. So uh, we need a mixed economy. We need private business, of course. We need. We were built on private farms that were all self-sufficient. It's great if you if you have a community where you can um, create a community currency that's like backed by food futures. That would be great. And asset-backed currency backed by food, the food that you can cash in this currency for when the when the harvest happens if you've got that sort of community i mean i live in a senior village and we don't even have space for gardens here so and obviously people in the inner city are not going to have that sort of option but if you could set that up that's great and i think there is a way that we could set up a sort of national ebay that was publicly owned where you could sell whatever you've got or sell your labor you could call it labor dollars or food dollars or corn dollars or you know, backed by whatever you can cash it in for. But ideally, money, I think the bottom line is that money should be a public utility. It should be there to serve the, it should be mandated to serve the public. The banks should be required to serve the public. I mean, we should not really have bailed them out with FDIC insurance. If you ask me, that was a mistake in 1933. We had a strong public banking system at that time in the form of postal banks. What they should have done was strengthen the postal banks, but instead they they backstopped the private banks with insurance. So here we, the people, are bailing out the banks when they <laughs> they are not bailing out us. They are their goal is to make as much money as they can in whatever way they can. I appreciate those insights. Would you suggest then that the Bank of North Dakota might be a fairly safe place to put persons, uh, some of their investments? It would if you lived in North Dakota, but unfortunately, I don't think they take outside deposits. All right, what they about actually things... don't take many. I think only two or three percent of their deposits come from individuals. They're, the bulk of their deposits are the state's revenues, and that's just the way the thing is set up. Okay. What about doing other things such as paying off your debts, especially for your house, or co-op where you live so that that can't be foreclosed on in case there's a downturn and you happen to be adversely affected. Not just by this, but think of all the other things that are now challenging people in their financial security, such as artificial intelligence. It's going to wipe out an entire professional class in the United States. There's no question about that. Law. Yeah, it's already started. So I would want to get out of debt. So at least my domicile where I live is paid for. That's one idea. Do you think that's a wise idea to pay off for you? Yeah, you totally. Do? If you've got the money to pay it off, totally. I mean, that's just like gold and silver. Land is another one of those commodities that's always valuable. Okay. Now, but what many also people, about of course, don't have the money to do that. That's why they bought it on a contract in the first place. Okay, or even what about like the... your car. Many people have these um, auto loans that they can't afford, I mean, they can only afford it month by month, which they probably shouldn't have gotten into in the first place, but. Well, that's that's really risky. What about if you don't have the money for a house, a lot of places, the real estate is just too expensive, it's overpriced, and we are now seeing as much as a 20 to 30% reduction in the value of real estate because the market was overheated. It was falsely inflated and uh, and now it's coming back down to being more realistic. But I thought that people could also buy any number of uh, styles of uh, RVs, depending on if they have a family or a single person or a couple. A, they're not that expensive. You can get a very good one for around $70,000. You can drive anywhere, so you can drive to the places you'd like to be. You're not held in one place. It's like a house is gonna hold you wherever that house is with all the responsibilities. You've got leasehold improvement taxes, property taxes, you've got insurance taxes and, and improvements. But with a RV, uh, there are RV camps everywhere. And in fact, the RV capital of America is in Fort Myers. And uh, I went up there a couple weeks ago and I went to seven. There's about seven or eight of these and they have hundreds of different vehicles depending upon what you want. You want a small one that's brand new? by Mercedes-Benz, that's about $150,000. Uh, 
And uh, but that you can park right on a street. It, it's small. It looks like a you know it looks like a large RV, uh, SUV. If you want something that is, uh, you can go and and pull out the sides and have a fairly good amount of space. Oh, that can you know I've seen them where they twenty foot, forty foot. They can run you anywhere from. Forty-seven thousand to seventy-five thousand dollars. If you buy a low mileage but high quality used one, it's about half that price. So I think that that for a lot of people would be a good option, especially because a lot of people are not comfortable where they're living. They don't feel it's safe, or they feel that it's no longer the quality of life they once enjoyed in that space. That's true in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. It's true in. Uh, a lot of areas around Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, Washington, D.C., uh, Atlanta, Los Angeles, and uh, and uh, San Francisco, and also in Seattle and Portland. These are places that are no longer providing the quality of life they once did. So in my worldview, uh, you've got to be able to look at where is the most sustainable and quality of life place to live. And sometimes that's going to change. So if you've got an RV, you can change with it. You can get ahead of it. Your thoughts? Yeah, and these tiny home communities, too, that are sometimes cheaper than that. And they're very cute. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of videos that you can watch on YouTube on that. Yeah. And finally, I feel that a lot of people could invest in treasuries because the treasury is the government's IOU. It's not going to default on it. If the government suddenly said we cannot repay interest or the premium or redeem the value of your treasury note, the entire economy would collapse in a matter of hours. I mean, it would just the bottom would come out because there's it's just a good faith and value in the United States. There's no there's nothing of an asset value to equal the debt backing it up as an asset where Russia and China now are using gold, as is India in, in support of their trading. So. Treasuries, I think, are safe. And then having a certain amount of cash, I would suggest three months if you can afford it. And again, not everyone can, but you have to do it to the scale you can. Uh, and with some gold and silver as backup currencies and cash is what you live off of. And treasuries is a backstop. How about that? Yeah, great idea. And finally, right now there's at least 1500 1500 communities in the united states and called intentional communities some are very small you know 15 20 people some are very large and people can go there visit them uh, look up online see what people who live there uh, and who have been there are judging it as and then find one of these intentional communities for whatever period of time you want to be around like-minded people in a more safe environment uh, where you can have some collective input and yet still maintain your individuality and your autonomy. And if you've got an RV and you visit one of these communities, if it doesn't work for you, you can go to another one. But these are, these are becoming very popular, especially with people who have worked long enough to have some seniority, but not enough to be completely financially secure. And those people are able to have the uh, capacity to do the research, travel, seek them out, uh, find out what they're like, and then say, okay, if I have to move, that's my plan A. My concern is that a lot of people are going to wait too late. Look, I just went through a Category 5 hurricane where I live. And five years ago, there was another Category 5. It was 100 and 154 miles an hour. Category 5 is 156, but for all intents and purposes, 100 wow. was Category 5. There was enormous damage out where I live, enormous. I had planned for that, and as a result, I didn't suffer the same damage as everyone else. Still had running water and still had electricity because I had a commercial backup generator that I put a concrete wall around so the winds wouldn't uh, tear it apart, and then had to rebuild from there. Lost a lot of shrubs, etc. But down by the ocean, they weren't that interesting, and I, I cannot explain, but they didn't have as much damage. Now, just the opposite. Everybody living on the beach, back for a mile, going the entire coast of Florida was just decimated. And I mean, when I say decimated, I mean, if you didn't have one of those super millionaire, multimillionaire homes, uh, your home was just gone. And I drove down there a couple of days after the storm to see if I could help. 
and all their furniture was just in gigantic piles. They didn't put their furniture on the second floor if they had a second floor. They, and they, all of them said the same thing. We didn't anticipate it being this bad. But I said you knew that there was going to be a 12-foot storm surge. That means that if you're sitting three foot off the ground in your house or four feet, you've got eight feet of water that's going to come through your house. And most people's ceiling is nine feet, maybe ten feet. I mean, everything in your first floor is going to be entrenched. Did you take your valuables out? And the answer was no. We didn't think about it. So we were completely unprepared. And as a result, people's insurance didn't cover a lot of this stuff. Now the zoning doesn't allow them to rebuild. They're just out everything. And working class people, that meant they're, they're homeless unless they got a relative to stay with. So my suggestion is <clears throat> be prepared. If you're going to only start to look to sell your home or move to a better place after a crisis, it's too late. You've got to do it before a crisis, but based upon the likelihood of a crisis, using the best metrics you can and doing your homework, your thoughts. Yeah, I totally agree, of course. So we just have to awaken. Any final thoughts before we sign off today? Well, <clears throat> yeah, I think all we can do for the coming deluge of uh, the collapsing derivatives bubble, assuming it collapses, which it looks like it has to, is get out of the way of it. And as you say, be prepared, be prepared in your personal, um, you know, have enough backup for any emergency. We've seen all kinds of weather disasters that people weren't anticipating. I mean, the weather has just gone nuts, which I'm highly suspicious of myself, but I won't go into that. I, if I could bring up one other thing, I, you can cut this out if you want, but is that um, East Palestine is 35 miles from where my grandmother's grandparents' farm was in Plain Grove, Pennsylvania. Um, which, of course, they no longer own, but it was it had the best well water in the world. It was just a lovely place. Anyway, I'm concerned for my relatives that live in that area. I heard on a podcast that was just brilliant by a young girl, a young woman who said she's just a girl with a microphone and a camera. I think it's just great that ordinary people, she just did a lot of research and she talked about it in this podcast. But what she traced it to was that Western Pennsylvania has been slated for mining of lithium and cobalt, which they need for their chips for Intel, the company that's just on the other side of the border in Ohio, which will get funding from this new chips bill. I'm sure what they're going to do, or I assume what they're going to do is call it a national emergency, and therefore they can go in and uh, take the property by eminent domain, but they're still supposed to pay the... Um, the value of the property, well, if they make it unlivable by these toxic fumes, then the value of the property goes down, way, way down. So it will be, be very cheap to buy up this land from all these uh, residents. Anyway, and of course, she points to BlackRock and Vanguard, which is behind all these big companies, Intel, the railroad company, the tra train tracks, all those things are owned by the big the big, um, those are the, you know, $20 trillion companies that basically own every company in the stock market or the major companies on the, that are traded on the stock market. So they, they own a controlling share. And so let <laughs> me put this little, dark. Ellen, let me put this in a little different perspective. Um, so people understand for years, decades, Anytime any one of us who are journalists suggested that there were people behind the scenes pulling strings, immediately that was dismissed out of hand. Oh, that's just a conspiracy theory. There's no one behind the scenes. You know, um, whatever decisions Coca-Cola makes is Coca-Cola. Pepsi-Cola is Pepsi-Cola. You know, Pfizer is Pfizer. You know, Moderna is Moderna. That's not true. But we didn't have the evidence. And then along comes the World Economic Forum... And it no longer is just holding the secret conferences and classes at Davos by people of all walks of life. But they all had something in common. They were popular and successful, and they were good opinion leaders or policymakers. Then they start to nurture 
a whole generation. Barack Obama was one. Putin was one. Merkel was one. Uh, 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 the Prime Minister of Canada was one. And all over the world, they had these young world leaders in training, and they taught them about their ideas of the world in the future. They were very patient. It took decades. But now, they have a spokesperson out there. Uh, I'm sure you've seen one of his clips, Dr. Harari, Professor Harari. And he is saying things. I played his clips repeatedly. So people saw, saw that there was no exaggeration, no hyperbole, that the average person is just useless and worthless. And he said, we're going to get under their skin, meaning we're going to put devices. And then he goes into more. He says uh, that the the study of human biology has reached its uh, limits, but now we have, uh, through uh, artificial uh, intelligence and through transhumanism and through chips of different types, we can put something in a person's body. We can control their thoughts. We can control their body. Now, also, he's saying, but what about all the average people? Well, those people are worthless and useless, so we will create a form of distraction, much like a Aldous Huxley's uh, Soma. Soma was a drug that people took, and and they put them in la-la land, you know, so they didn't, they blissed out. Well, now he's talking about a virtual reality, and what is Facebook doing, and what is Meta? It's a virtual reality. Failed thus far, but it will succeed. And so a person can program on their computer anything they want, any fantasy, any fetish, any desire, and then that's automatically programmed right in to their headset. They put it on, they see, and they think it's real because it's a virtual reality. It's not an authentic reality. And say they can spend a whole day there because they have no other use. There's no use for them. So then they started proposing the idea that uh, you will own nothing and you'll be happy. And people thought, well, that's stupid. <laughs> I work my whole life to have something that's mine, you know, my house, my car. And so why would I not want to have that? Well, because you've got debt. The whole world's in debt. And the world can never repay its debt. And so we want to do away with all your debt. Oh, really? You got my attention now. My student debt? Yes, gone. Car debt? Gone. House uh, mortgage debt? Gone. Credit card? Gone. Corporate debt? Gone. Federal government debt? Gone. All that's going to be wiped away. Because it's all just... It's all not real. You know, it's uh, it's keyboards punching in numbers by authority figures who have nothing to back it up. So we're going to take away all your debt, and you won't own anything, but you will be able to rent everything. What do you mean? Well, if you want to cook tonight, what do you want to cook? Uh, I want to cook uh, vegan meal. Okay, it'll be sent to you. Well, what do I need to cook? Well, you'll need pots and pans, etc. Exactly what you need, it will be sent to you. And in the, after your meal in the morning, it'll be picked up. And when you go out today, someone else will come in to where you live and take over until you decide to come back, and that'll all be programmed. And so when you come back, it'll be your place again. But in the interim, it'll be someone else's. And a car will pick you up and drive you where you need to go. Don't worry about it. So in other words, I don't have to buy anything. You don't have to buy anything. Uh, but until we get there... We're going to control your currency. We're going to have a digitalized currency. I see. So what about cash? Cash will not be allowed. Gold, silver, not allowed. Precious metals, not allowed. Any assets, no assets will be allowed. So in other words, when I want something, you will either say yes or no, I can have it. And if you don't like what I'm buying, if you say it increases the carbon footprint, you can say no to it. That's correct. But don't you want the world to be a safer place environmentally? Yes. Well, this is how we do it. I see. Now, I, are you going to limit how much I can travel? Yes, we have what are called 15-minute cities. They're being tested right now in Oxford, in, in Great Britain. And everything you need will be within 15 minutes of where you live. And you'll have to stay in that district. If you decide to go to another area that's outside that, well, then you have to go out. And then you have to go around and come back in again. You mean if there's a if there's someone I'm going to visit a block away from me, but they're in a different zone, different 15 minute zone, I would have to go out and go clear around the whole zone, like going around a clear around a city to get to a block that's a block away. That's correct. But we're going to allow you to bike. 
So you can bike, you can walk, but you can't drive. We're going to give you so many uh, so many trips out of the the 15-minute zone per year, and then you'll be penalized. Okay, so my whole life now is being relegated where I can live, how far I can go before I'm penalized by you. Yes, we're the stakeholders. We no longer have shareholders. Those who were the top corporations, they're the stakeholders. The Davos people, they're the stakeholders. Do they have to abide by the same rules? Of course not. You know, there are no rules they ever have to abide by. Uh, they're, that's why they're a stakeholder. But you're not a stakeholder, and you've got problems. And by the way, we actually have a new technology that can be planted in your brain, so A, you're no longer depressed or anxious. How about that? Yeah, I'm up for that. Are you? Good. And uh, we just curious, will you be able to read my thoughts? Of course. Because we have to know what you're feeling and what you're thinking so we can change that. I see. So in other words, you're going to be my head. Of course we are. Because we don't want you being disturbed, troubled, anxious, angst-ridden, depressed, lonely. We can control that. So you're going to have total control over my entire mind and body. Yes. And that's a good thing. If you're the average person, you don't have a mind worth using to begin with, right? You voted for all the wrong people, right? You watch the Cardassians. You, you watch all these reality shows. You're into violence, as long as you're a spectator to it. Uh, you didn't stop polluting. You wouldn't sacrifice anything. Don't you think that there's a better way of living? Well, we are controlling that better way of living, so you no longer will have a choice. We'll control it, and that's a good thing. So you can just spend the rest of your life in la-la land. But before we get there, you're going to have an opportunity to, if you're rich enough, to buy. Uh, and by the way, the professional class and the millionaire class, if you add those two together, it's about 80 million people or about one-fourth the entire American population. You're not, uh, you're not going to be able to play by your own rules. You'll still be playing by uh, our, our rules. But the very elite, the very rich, they're the stakeholders. And understand something. When you put your money into a retirement fund, it doesn't stay there. Suddenly State Street or BlackRock or Vanguard or Berkshire Hathaway or Fidelity, one of these major companies, they, they have that money. That allows one of them to be worth about $12 trillion, $10 trillion, altogether around more or less 40 to $50 trillion. And that's the greatest amount of liquid asset in the world. So they control everything. They buy interest in a corporation. And let's say there are 100 food companies. They buy controlling uh, shares in all 100 com companies. Therefore, they control the farms. They control the distribution system. They, control, they bought the stores. So from seed to salad, every single step they, they control. So they cannot lose. But you can. So this is the new system. So that's how all these companies got all this money. They captured federal agencies. They control the media. So they control the message. They control the deep state. They control the message. They control the courts. They control the judiciary. They select. And then they elect. People they want, not people you want. I see... How accurate does that sound to you, Ellen? Uh, that sounds <laughs> accurately like what they have laid out. Obviously not something we want, not we as humans. I mean, the whole point of being human is the ability to choose, to determine our own, to make choices. That's <laughs> so but they, anyway, you, that, did, you know, I, I get into a lot of these woo-woo things that we have the power. We have the power on the inside, but we need to get together. I mean, we're as a force. We, we but, the but humanity we as and a we force won't. is there powerful, is no hum there is, there is there is no humanity as a force. It doesn't exist. That's a utopian pipe dream. If we had <laughs> humanity as a force, we wouldn't have we would have demonstrated against the war in Ukraine or against the war in Yemen 
or against uh, the war in Afghanistan or against the war in Iraq or the bombing of Libya and the bombing of Syria and the intervention of 50 other countries' democratically elected governments. We didn't do it. We would be a force against our children being poisoned and polluted with junk food. We didn't do it. We would vote for the most ethical and spiritual and moral and qualified candidates. We vote for the worst. So I'm at a point in my life where I will no longer accept that we can do anything as a group because we haven't. When you show me a group that joins together now in Europe, it's different. They have multiple parties. They join together a demonstration of a man French. And yet with all the publicity and some of the best minds in America, most independent minds, they can only get 3000 people to uh, in Washington. And then the media, Rachel Maddow, just tried to destroy their credibility saying it was a pro-Putin rally when it was a rally for peace. So I'm not one of those people who believe that we can change at this moment. Individually, yes, but collectively, absolutely not. Too many people have drank the Kool-Aid. Too many people are already acting as if they're in a soma state. But I thank you for coming on and sharing what we can do, good practical advice, Ellen, okay. <laughs> Hodgkin, Brown. Well, thank it's you very much. Uh, to me, what's promising about this time in history is we have so much information at our fingertips. We never had that before. I had a friend who's passed away now, but he he was in World War II, and I don't remember what the conversation was directly, but. I said, well, what about Hiroshima and Nagasaki? And he said, well, you have to understand, all we had was the newspaper, and they told us that they were slant-eyed devils, you know, that these were, they were characterized as the enemy, and obviously we would want to kill them. There, there was, But now we've got the Internet where we can see that those people on the other side of the world are just like us. They're humans just like us. And okay. um, Ellen, Russia, India, Ellen. China, et cetera, they have organized to form a new system, and I think they are forming a new system. Which Neither, none of, Ellen, please let me intervene because we're out of time. None of those countries have an ideal situation. I won't go into all the crimes against humanity that the Chinese are committing right now. So it's a duality. They're committing all yeah, these wonderful, wonderful architectural design cities and high speed trains in the world. And yet they're, uh, they're organ harvesting from the, um, uh, from the Phelan gun and they're imprisoning and reindoctrinating the Uyghurs and killing them as well. So there's a lot to be learned from what they don't do. But I certainly understand your your position. And I am no longer an optimist for the change because I don't see anyone giving up their power. I don't see any institution changing because it hasn't. If the only time an institution changes when they are so egregious, then why won't we take away their charters? But we won't. We've never taken away any of their charters, even even Merck that created the Vioxx and killed 60,000 people minimally. We didn't take away their charter. So the day after their verdict, they had to give a small fine compared to what they earned. And it was business as usual, and everybody was happy. That's the way our society is, what we've morphed into. We have good people who've yet to speak and act. And one day, they're no longer good people if they allow everything that's bad happening in front of them to happen, and they couldn't find their voice. Thank you all for listening to the Progressive Commentary Hour. Have a nice day. Thanks for being with us today, Ellen. Thank you. Bye.